Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garnett. It's Thursday, October 13th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Bio, the lobbying group representing biotech on Capitol Hill, parted ways with its CEO in a late night press release early this week to the shock of many in the industry. STAT Washington correspondent Rachel Kors joins us to explain the fallout. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the future of mRNA, a promising startup closing its doors, and Biogen's search for a new CEO. But first, a word from our sponsor. The rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines has pushed mRNA forward in the fight against cancer and complex diseases. Scott Ripley, General Manager for Nucleic Acid Therapeutics at Cytiva, is here to tell us more. mRNA is joining other scientific advances like CRISPR, immuno-oncology, and intracellular antibodies to drive new treatments and transform patient care. With mRNA clinically validated, therapies are accelerating through to approval. Biopharma is getting ready for an explosion in manufacturing demand at all scales, and at Cytiva, we're thrilled to help them along on that journey. You can learn more at cytiva.com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. So it feels like we kind of uh, jumped back to the 2018, 2019 days. Um, The big news around Moderna um, and a lot of the mRNA players was cancer vaccines, something I feel like we haven't talked about since the pandemic started. But uh, that's what the industry was talking about this week. Adam, can you fill us in on the progress with Moderna's and Merck's cancer vaccine deal? Right. Uh, As we all, maybe we don't remember, but we should remember back in the pre-pandemic days. It seems so long ago. The before Um, times. Before, right. The before times, before Moderna obviously used its messenger RNA technology to craft a COVID vaccine. You know, they were working uh largely on developing mRNA-based drugs, uh, therapeutics, you know, as well as vaccines. Um, And one of those was a cancer vaccine. I actually wrote about one of their early cancer vaccines back in 2019 uh, and then sort of promptly forgot about it, you know, know, I guess, guess, you know, with uh, everything COVID-related. But uh, that came back into the news this week, like like you said, Allison. Uh, Merck has decided to opt in on a collaboration that it had ongoing with, with Moderna, to an advanced development of this personalized cancer vaccine, it would be a potential treatment for skin cancer, and it would be used in combination with Merck's uh, checkpoint inhibitor, Keytruda. Uh, as part of the deal, Merck is paying Moderna a $250 million kind of opt-in fee, which is a you know, nice chunk of change. But I think more interestingly, you know, um, this cancer vaccine, uh, again, which is a patient specific, it's it's made uh, it's made for each patient, um, is right now undergoing uh, a phase two study uh, in combination with Keytruda. We haven't seen results of that study yet. Again, these are in skin cancer patients, um, but results from that study are supposed to be uh, presented or at least announced before the end of the year. Now, clearly, Merck has made this decision to opt in and advance the development of this cancer vaccine. Um, before at least we know 
the results of the study, but it's pretty clear that you know Merck and Moderna are seeing something pretty encouraging in those data to you know to kind of move this partnership forward. Yeah, it struck me, you know, as you mentioned, $250 million in biotech terms, especially companies the size of Moderna, let alone Merck, is not a huge sum of money. However, the reaction among investors was that Moderna's stock price went up as much as 10%, which means they added something on the order of $5 billion to their valuation for that $250 million, suggesting, I think, that this was perceived as one, you know, Merck, uh, a venerated company expressing faith in this product, but also more broadly expressing faith in something Moderna does that isn't a vaccine for COVID-19, which <laughs> it is a very like, what have you done for me lately conversation that the company seems to have with investors. No one doubts, obviously, the power of that vaccine and the incredible sums of money that Moderna has made from it. But the market for booster shots has not maybe materialized to the extent that some investors would like. And the future of Moderna, which again carries this massive valuation, maybe is a little shaky in people's minds. Like, can they really fulfill their long-held promises to do things that aren't vaccines that may be more lucrative? And, you know, this is a relatively early stage uh, product. They've been working, hammering away at cancer vaccines for many years. I think some of the early data were maybe less than enthralling to oncologists when they were presented. But this is just kind of like a breadcrumb trail to a future in which Moderna can live up to some of this stuff. Right. And, you know, this deal has some upside potential and some benefits for both Merck and Moderna. You know, Merck obviously, uh, you know, sells Keytruda. It is the, like, I guess you could probably say it's the most successful uh cancer immunotherapy out there today, you know, billions and billions of dollars in sales every year. Um, but at the same time, you know, these checkpoint inhibitors, uh, uh, the, that class of, of which Keytruda is the dominant, the dominant product, you know, really only benefits to this day still, you know, a minority of cancer patients respond to treatment to Keytruda and other checkpoint inhibitors. So there has been this ongoing effort to find ways to, you know, maybe potentially add drugs to uh, a checkpoint inhibitor to boost the potency, boost the efficacy, uh, you know, have more patients benefit. And there are lots of different ways. And some there are some combination uh, regimens out there that are already approved, particularly in skin cancer. Uh, you know, so this is an effort by Merck, you know, to, to you know, maybe potentially add a, a, a skin cancer, a cancer vaccine to Keytruda. Now, and also we should say that when we say vaccine, we're not obviously talking about preventing cancer. We're, we're using the term vaccine here because what, what these products theoretically do, because they haven't, you know, been proven out yet, but what they do is obviously stimulate a patient's immune system to kind of, you know, to kind of track down and kill cancer cells. Um, and then these cancer vaccines are particularly interesting because, um, what, you know, they are just kind of, they're sort of referred to as sort of the next generation of cancer vaccines because they use uh, genetic sequencing essentially to kind of take the tumor and they, and they peer into the tumor to find the individual, the specific mutations within a patient's tumor and then basically create you know, a personalized therapeutic or vaccine against that tumor. So these are, you know, each patient would have its own cancer vaccine that would be tailored to the specific mutations within that patient's tumor. So it's a pretty interesting concept. Um, You know, there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot more work to do before this proves out. Yeah, I I saw that point in your your article, Adam, and it immediately kind of raised like a little yellow flag in my brain because we we love the idea of personalized medicines, but, and I'm probably going to harp on this for like, you know, months and, and years to come, 
the actually putting them into wide use has just proven such a problem. Um, and I remember like Moderna was was starting to talk about that, you know, when they opened their big manufacturing site in Norwood. Um, but I'm curious, like if if you have a sense, have they figured out that that question of, you know, <laughs> the manufacturing of, you know, these individualized cancer vaccines over the long term? I mean, it's it's definitely an issue. You know, you think about CAR T therapies. Obviously, are the current the current class of CAR T therapies that are approved are also patient specific. You know, those have to be made. And and yes, certainly in the beginning, uh, manufacturing of those uh, CAR T therapies was difficult and time consuming. Um, there were you know manufacturing failures. Uh, and, but I think, you know, by and large, the industry has kind of started to figure out how to streamline that manufacturing process, make it successful. Uh, and so I, I suspect that the cancer vaccines, if they do prove out from an efficacy and safety standpoint, um, you know, they will sort of go that same route. There will be some growing pains, particularly, you know, if there's a large demand. I mean, you, you are, you know, these are, it's, it's not easy to make these. And so you do have to build out the facilities and the manufacturing to be able to do it. But like, I don't think it's necessarily impossible to do. Uh, so that, but that's definitely a wrinkle in all of this, you know, and obviously costs too. I mean, you know, they, they tend to be just more expensive, but, you know, I mean, again, you know, we have to wait to see whether or not these things, uh, actually work or not. And, you know, cancer, as we know, is, uh, is a wily adversary. And so oftentimes, you know, just because you can, um, you think that you can, uh, make a therapeutic that's custom, you know, the custom tailored to the specific mutations, you know, uh, cancer changes and those mutations change, change and and so, um, you know, that would be a big challenge. So coincidentally, as Merck and Moderna were announcing this deal about the future of mRNA, our colleague Matt Herper was sitting down with Ugar Sahin and Oslem Tarecki, the husband and wife duo who lead BioNTech, uh, the other company that makes an mRNA vaccine in tandem with Pfizer to talk about basically the same topic in another framing, which is what next? You've made these billions of dollars and now what? And it, it was interesting the contrast, um, and we've spoken about this before, between BioNTech and Moderna, these companies with similar technologies, but with just different organizational priorities, it would seem, and certainly different profiles in public. Um, the the two co-founders, I mean, Uger Sahin, I think, still rides his bike to his office in Mainz, Germany. He's a former professor. He has that sort of kind of Tweedy reserve, maybe, that is in contrast to, for example, Stefan Bonsell of Moderna, who for many, many years, long before Moderna was a household name and had any revenue whatsoever, um, has carried himself, I guess, just differently, maybe, is the way to put it. And it was notable, I think, that BioNTech, you know, they have a similar, but I think more, more disparate and arguably more ambitious well, maybe it's not more ambitious, but a more disparate approach than Moderna um, with respect to how to prosecute mRNA. They're looking at CAR-T programs of their own. They're looking at, you know, they have an early stage uh, mRNA immunotherapy that would be for multiple sclerosis if it works. So, I don't know, it's just an interesting kind of point of contrast between those two companies. But I mean, both of them share a belief that messenger RNA is not going to be remembered as a cool thing that helped resolve a global pandemic, but rather truly be a new class of medicines that we think of the same way we would think of, you know, any kind of injectable treatment that is that is widely available now. So it's just, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. It's not necessarily a race between the two companies, um, although in some indications it might be, but just as as the years unfold, these two kind of like 
titans of this new technology, where their varying interests and personalities take them. Yeah, I mean, as you point out, you know, BioNTech has a very different profile than Moderna. I mean, even if we just look at the the pandemic, you know, BioNTech was working with Pfizer, a big pharmaceutical giant. And I, I always kind of felt like Pfizer took, you know, was kind of the lead there, was kind of the, at least in the public persona, like kind of like the alpha. Moderna was going it alone the whole time. And now, you know, BioNTech is at this point where for the rest of their pipeline, there's things that, you know, they're they're going to be doing, I think, with partners. But then there's also, you know, they're not working with Pfizer. Um, I, there was that statement, I think, that uh, Pfizer CEO put out last year um, around one of their programs that Pfizer was going to do alone. It was a messenger RNA program, but they were like, nope, this isn't a BioNTech partnership. This is something we're going to separate on. And how BioNTech operates itself, I think, is going to look very different than Moderna. So switching gears, uh, Damien, Allison, please remove your hats and raise a glass as we toast the short life of triplet therapeutics. Chin chin. Chin chin. Allison, tell us what happened. Yeah. So I reported this week um, triplet therapeutics, which was a startup that was co-founded by Atlas Venture, you know, the the storied um, Cambridge-based venture capital firm um, in 2019 to create drugs for these so-called repeat expansion disorders, these disorders where, um, you know, things kind of go a little bit haywire and you start getting more repeats of letters in in the DNA strand than uh, you should have, and that causes disease. Um, Triplet has started winding down, and it is effectively gone. I like when you pull up their website. It just has that big 404. It has that 404, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like they're, like they're still working out, you know, the paperwork, but it's essential. <laughs> it's for all intents and purposes done. Um, they ran into, like, an interesting kind of, like, one-two punch in the last year. Their their lead drug was for Huntington's disease. You know, it's really terrible neurological condition that causes physical and cognitive problems. And unfortunately, they set out to raise a Series B the same year that we had two really high profile uh, failures in the Huntington's realm from Roche and from Wave Life Sciences. And, you know, I, I spoke to the now former CEO, Nesson Birmingham, and he told me that that really put a chill over the Huntington's field and really impeded their ability to raise new funding. You know, they had they had plans to kind of move into clinical trials and they just the funding really crippled those plans. Now, tangentially, they also ran into some, you know, kind of toxicity issues in their preclinical studies that I think kind of was the 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 nail in the coffin for triplet and just kind of made it you know, impossible for them to to move forward as a company. So that issue, was it just the fact that some other Huntington's treatments had failed? Or is there a connection between uh, those more advanced ones from other companies and what Triplet was working on? Yeah, all, all three drugs were these antisense oligonucleotides. Roche's was much more advanced. That was a, a phase three trial, I believe. You know, Triplet and Wave Life Sciences were kind of at the, you know, the earlier end, obviously. Um, but what, you know, 
Nesson told me was that these these tox issues that they were seeing on the triplet side kind of combined with um, you know what came out from Wave Life Sciences and Roche to him you know, make him have the opinion that these antisense oligonucleotides are might be a little bit too tough on the neurons in your brain. And and that really might be a um, you know, a whole factor that the industry has to to grapple with to develop new Huntington's treatments. Um that these these this drug mechanism, while people were really excited about it, just might be a little bit too tough on the brain. So let's end uh, Chatty Cathy this week uh, with Damien. We had a little scoop about the the company that we like to write about, Biogen. Uh, a little, <laughs> I know people are like, oh, God, they're rolling their eyes. But this is a legitimate – this was a legitimate journalism scoop, right? We, we've got dibs on who the leading candidate is for the CEO job. Right. So as people may recall, uh, Biogen announced in the spring that its current CEO, Michelle Venatsos, would soon no longer be its current CEO and has, in the intervening time, been embarked on a CEO search. And what we learned is, well, two things, I think. One, that the leading candidate, as you mentioned, is this guy, Matai Mammon, who uh, was most recently at Johnson & Johnson or is in sort of garden leave from Johnson & Johnson, um, but was one of the co-founders of the company Theravance and was then at Merck and is an MD-PhD pharmaceutical executive, which is notable because the second thing, maybe more impactful, is we learned that that is the profile of person that Biogen is looking most closely at in this CEO search, which, you know, maybe not staggering news that a scientist might uh, be a candidate for a job running a scientific company, but at least for Biogen, since 1985, only one of their CEOs, George Skangos, has been an MD-PhD type. The rest have been MBA types. They come from sort of the commercial side um, of the drug industry, including Michelle Venazos, the one who, who will soon be leaving. And so this, to the extent we can read tea leaves, suggests a little bit of a sea change uh, for Biogen historically, which has been has very much prized, I think, investor friendliness and pragmatism in recent years. I mean, we've talked about this probably too much uh, with respect to how the board operates and how um, kind of conservative they've been, which is perhaps played out in who they've chosen to be CEO. And so uh, Matai's candidacy and the broader focus on people like him suggests that, you know, the future of Biogen might be different from the past. Yeah. And so we reached out, obviously, to Matai Mammon and we reached out to Biogen and, and neither side is kind of talking about or giving us comments about where they are in the stage and negotiations. So, you know, we have heard that, you know, their talks are ongoing, that there's not, there at least it has not been kind of a formal offer yet, but like it was going, you know, it was sort of heading in that direction. So I guess we'll have to wait and see when Biogen sort of formally makes an announcement or a decision. Uh, but like you said, it is it is interesting, Damien, because, you know, Matai is, he's a scientist, right? I mean, he, you know, he's an MD, PhD, uh, I think pretty widely respected in the field as a drug developer and scientist. And uh, that does, that's a notable change uh, for Biogen. And I think probably one that will be fairly well received. I mean, is a comp- obviously with this company that has uh, run into a fair amount of trouble. But, you know, as we have also talked about in recent episodes, you know, we've talked about Lecanemab, the Alzheimer's drug, which they are uh, co-developing with ASI, the Japanese pharmaceutical company. And so that has given kind of a little bit of a lift 
to Biogen's fortunes. And um, it may be that coupled with, you know, somebody who does have some deep experience in R&D and kind of can take a look at the pipeline and maybe, you know, remove some of the dead wood and maybe find new drugs, whether that that's done internally or through licensing deals. Um, you know, there, there's sort of maybe a path forward for Biogen. Yeah. And I mean, to kind of close out that point, I think it's not only an interesting move for Biogen, but also, I mean, let's be honest, the biotech industry has tended to favor your you know, MBA types when a company reaches commercial stage. I remember when you know, Reshma Kawal Ramani was selected as the next CEO of Vertex. It felt like we were having like this similar conversation of, oh, how exciting a scientist as as CEO. Um, I almost wonder if Biogen, you know, this experience of seeing this, you know, what was for a long time a very stable commercial company um, really falter under a more like business focused leadership um, has been a, a learning lesson for the board. In 2020, Bio, which is the trade group that represents biotech companies in Washington, D.C., was ready for a change. It hired Michelle McMurray-Heath, a doctor and former FDA official, to be its next CEO and tasked her with healing divisions among the roughly 1,000 disparate companies that make up its membership. It was, by McMurray-Heath's own admission, a sometimes messy process. But as recently as last year, she and Bio's board members insisted that the organization was on a path to harmony. That made it all the more shocking on Sunday when the Wall Street Journal reported that McMurray-Heath was on leave from her job at Bio, followed by Monday's confirmation from Bio itself that she had stepped down, leaving many around Biotech wondering what exactly went wrong within the organization. Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors has been covering the fallout from McMurray-Heath's departure. She joins us now to talk about it. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us what's known about the situation at this point. Are any of the parties speaking publicly about what's been going on? So the journal's reporting, I think, was the first kind of indication we had that Michelle, Dr. Michelle, as you know, she's referred to within the organization, was on leave at some point. We don't know exactly when it started, but... You know, there was a newsletter, email newsletter kind of that went out Friday morning. Um, and on Sunday, she was on leave. On Monday, she resigned um, from her CEO position at kind of this, this big board meeting. Um, so it was a pretty tight timeline here. And we do have, you know, written statements from the CEO of uh, Bio's board, Paul Hastings, who kind of put out a pretty predictable statement saying, you know, we thank her for her service, that kind of thing. And But there's not a whole lot of um, talk from the principals right now about, you know, exactly what went wrong. And there's just a really small group of people who kind of actually knew, knows like what um, led to this departure. So before we get into some of the implications there, maybe it's worth stepping back for people who aren't steeped in this world and explaining what exactly is bio supposed to do? And, and then also, how is it different from the larger and definitely better known trade group, Pharma, PHRMA, which represents companies like Pfizer and Merck? Right. So bio definitely doesn't have the same like firepower in terms of lobbying, in terms of money that pharma does. But what their job is, is to 
represent kind of the biotech, the small kind of earlier stage companies that, you know, kind of get lost in the the really uh, big players. And, you know, they're not necessarily the heavyweights. There's obviously way more members um, in bio, a lot of smaller companies, a lot of state associations um, that, you know, don't qualify for a membership in pharma, but are obviously a really important part of the drug development pipeline. So bio, you know, specializes in giving those um, earlier stage companies a voice in the policymaking process. Uh, obviously, they're not as big or well known, but um, they certainly do, I think, resonate with lawmakers because a lot of lawmakers have these smaller companies in their districts. They're, you know, sympathetic to the argument about entrepreneurship and kind of the risk um, and the real innovation that's happening within these companies. So it definitely uh, plays a very important role within kind of the, the conversation about um, drug pricing policy and FDA policy in Washington. As we noted at the top, uh, Bio hired Dr. Michelle to take over the CEO role of the organization back in 2020, and and her selection, her appointment was was kind of was heralded with some you know with some fanfare. Um, tell us a little bit about Dr. Michelle Rachel and like you know why her why her selection was so noteworthy. Bio had been led by um, a former kind of Republican congressman, Jim Greenwood, for like 15 years. Um, it had been a very stable organization for a long time. And uh, in 2020, when Dr. Michelle was brought in, um, it was a big change. And there was so much fanfare. Um, obviously, the um, first black woman to lead uh, a large pharmaceutical lobbying organization like this. And, you know, she just had, you know, this really unusual um, background that we see in kind of the lobbying world. She's a physician. Um, she'd worked for the FDA. She'd work at J&J as well. Um, and she was the first Black person to graduate with an MD-PhD um, from Duke University. So really this just like sterling resume. And um, she was really brought in as this transformational figure. She was, you know, personally a Democrat. And um, I think there were some, really some hopes that she would help the industry make some inroads with Democrats who have, you know, turned increasingly hostile toward the industry. She was also, it seems, kind of tasked with unifying bio, you know, this this really large trade organization. And, and back in 2021, our colleague Nick Florco wrote a, a really in-depth piece looking at how that kind of daunting task was playing out. And it seems that the short version is that, you know, this sprawling organization was filled with companies with often like disparate or sometimes contrary ideas of what biotech should advocate for in Washington. What do we know about how her tenure played out and how you know, her objective of unifying those disparate voices, you know, was going. So, yeah, Nick's reporting, I think, touched on some of these themes that we're seeing now um, in a very prescient way. Um, so he, I think, reported the first kind of point of conflict was kind of in her role and how much Bio was going to be out there in front on social issues, um, talking about voting rights, talking about abortion, you know, talking about some of these really um, controversial issues when that, you know, may not have unanimous agreement within Bio's very large um, membership, some of which is based in red states. So I think there was certainly some conflict over kind of how far the organization should go on that um, and how 
prominent Michelle, uh, Dr. Michelle should be um, with, you know, her public statements, that sort of thing on those issues. And um, a, another issue, obviously, is how the organization was going to handle the drug pricing issue, uh, because there are, you know, these huge companies, big pharma companies that have a lot at stake um, in this kind of drug pricing reform environment. And there are some companies who don't even have a product on the market yet. And it just, the whole thing seems like very far off to them. So I think um, there's just so much disagreement about kind of the right policy steps, whether, you know, bio should adopt kind of the more pharma-esque strategy of, you know, just going scorched earth on every tiny change or whether there should be some concessions and, you know, willingness to come to the table with actual solutions. And I think, you know, those um, issues preexisted um, her tenure and I think they continued um, throughout her tenure as well. And, you know, reconciling those issues isn't something that's going to happen overnight or maybe ever, but managing that to a point of functioning, you know, is kind of the task of the CEO um, in this position. Hey, Rachel, um, I wonder, you know, influence is the coin of the realm down there in D.C. And, and, you know, you mentioned drug pricing and, you know, bio and pharma as well, kind of on the losing side of of that issue with the recently passed legislation. Um, Do you think that that had any role or, you know, um, or influence in, in what happened to Dr. Michelle? That's a good question. And I think it's kind of um, coincidental timing. Uh, the people kind of that I've talked to so far have kind of said that, like, certainly um, there were disagreements about the strategy um, that she employed, you know, how much she was on the Hill, how much she wasn't. But I think overall, that factor alone wouldn't necessarily lead to, you know, an exit like this. And again, you know, looking at the counterpart of pharma, um, most of their top leadership team has stayed in place. Um, and to my knowledge, there's not, you know, any, you know, imminent departures or any kind of upheaval like we're seeing with bio. So I think the consensus is that certainly there may be many factors that came into play here. And it was a big loss for the industry. It was um, you know, certainly something that they have tried to avoid for a very long time. But I think that factor alone doesn't explain um, the kind of unceremonious and poorly choreographed departure that we've seen um, from Dr. Michelle. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of circling our earlier question of like, what is bio uh, in the context of both this departure and, you know, any fallout over legislative things? Because just, you know, in in my personal opinion, this looks bad, this situation. I think mean, that's really obvious. But they brought in a new leader and made a public commitment to change. And, you know, you read the quotes from that time period, people are on the record about what her leadership would mean and what they expected. And now she has left on what, again, just my opinion, do not appear to be amicable terms, just based on how these things tend to play out. What is next for bio? Like, where do they go from here? What will you be looking out for to kind of signal how this organization is going to progress from this clear like low point in their public profile. Yeah, I think everyone kind of agrees that the optics here are pretty terrible and that, you know, this was not handled in the most, you know, graceful manner. And I think that just raises a lot of questions and kind of um, casts a shadow over, um, 
recruitment for this role. Um, they have announced an interim CEO, Rachel King, who's a former board chair of Bio and, you know, has been around the organization a long time. There's a lot of kind of support. She has a lot of fans uh, within Bio right now. Uh, but I think they have said that they are planning to launch a search um, for um, a new CEO. And I think one thing that I'm watching for is that, you know, technically Dr. Michelle is staying on as in some advisory role to the executive committee. Um, but just kind of seeing, you know, where she lands next um, is going to be a process that I think will work out over time. Um, and I think just kind of waiting to see what, um, what goes different with this recruitment process? Because obviously they, you know, had a big effort to um, make some change and a lot of the same people are helping make that decision and um, clearly it wasn't the right fit. So I think um, there's some hard questions about kind of what's going to be different this time in terms and what the organization needs. It's a different organization than, um, you know, when uh, Dr. Michelle took over, you know, even a couple uh, years ago. So I think, um, there's going to have to be some soul searching about um, what kind of qualities um, a leader needs to kind of pick up the pieces here. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and is there anything else from the pre-COVID days you want us to bring back on future episodes? Just let us know. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.